Good morning, New Life. I'm Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Prez. Good to see you all. Good number of people here in light of World Cup finals. So glad that you're here to worship God. We are actually in our uh, second Sunday looking at um, a very short series called Advent. And Advent is really a focus on the presence and the return of Jesus. And so we're looking at the prophet Micah. And Micah, historically, is a contemporary of Isaiah, who we looked at last week. And they're both prophesying about a future Savior. And it's so multifaceted and multidimensional about who this Jesus is. You know, he's a Savior, he's a king, he's a shepherd, he's a ruler. Um, And so we're going to take a different perspective on this in light of the sort of lesser-known prophet in Micah, Micah chapter 5, hopefully to bring a level of encouragement and hope uh, in a world that so desperately needs it. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand and, for the reading of God's Word, Micah chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to verse 6. This is God's Word. <clears throat> now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. And this is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, as I mentioned already, Isaiah, who most likely wrote his prophet, his prophecy, his book of Isaiah, maybe around 700, 750 BCE, is a contemporary of Micah. And some of the commentators will note that, um, that Isaiah is the more popular one. You know, you probably have read Isaiah. It is perhaps the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. But Micah was a contemporary. He was somebody that was also a prophet and a a spokesperson for God, and he was alive and ministering in the same time as Isaiah. And both of them were essentially ministering and preaching and trying to help the people of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. Because you remember that when Israel occupied the promised land of Canaan, there's a northern kingdom, and there was a southern kingdom. And the context of Isaiah and Micah is going to be the southern kingdom of Judah. But whereas Isaiah was prophesying about the potential distress of Assyrian invasion. Micah is prophesying during the presence of distress of the Assyrian invasion. So Isaiah was saying, be careful, trust in the promise of God, otherwise his judgment will come through the invasion of Assyria. Micah is actually continuing the same prophecy, but Assyria has already taken over. So they're contemporaries, they're they're co-laborers. And they're in the middle of distress, they're in the middle of suffering, they're living it out. 
what Isaiah was predicting, Micah is living out in his context. You see that in verse 1 in the beginning verse of our passage. It says, now muster your troops, you know, gird up your loins, put up your dukes. O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the, the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, the king at that time was probably Sennacherib. He was Hezekiah. You know, he was maybe the king at that point. Um, but essentially in verse 1, what you're, what you're noticing here is that there is both um, an oppression but also an embarrassment because it said siege is laid against us. That means you're, you're overpowered. You're taken over. You know, somebody else is in control. And when it says strike on the cheek, that actually is the most embarrassing and shameful. It was the most disrespectful act you could have back in that time. To strike a king on the cheek was the most disrespectful and embarrassing act. And to have your leader be struck on the cheek means that for you as a person, as a nation, not only are you overpowered and oppressed, but now you're also embarrassed and shamed. And that's the distress that they're in. And in the middle of this, Micah is saying once again, don't believe in power and wealth and contractual arrangements of people. Your hope in this world is in a promise of a Savior that's going to be born unto you. Now, that's hard to believe because a lot of us fix our problems through being savvy and to be very practical and pragmatic. But at the end of the day, I'm going to try to show you that as good as you are with managing your life, the only way you could have a real hope, a real security, is going to be believing in the coming of a Savior, just like Mike is trying to tell his people. And so I want to look at three perspectives about this coming of a Savior, because what Micah does is to show you this Savior is going to be a king. He's going to rule over your life. He's going to be your boss. He's going to be a king who is deeply empathetic and loving and shepherding. And Micah brings all of this out so that even for people like you and me today in a modern context, you can apply what Micah is trying to tell them centuries ago. So three perspectives on this birth of a king. One, we're going to look at the birthplace of this king. Secondly, we're going to look at the type of king this person is. And then thirdly, we'll look at the extent of his kingdom. So where was this king born? What kind of ruler was this king? And how big was his kingdom? Where did it expand to? How far are the reaches of his kingdom? So let's look at this together. First, let's do a little bit of a biography. Let's look at the significance of the birthplace. Now, where was he born? Verse 2 sort of tells us, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. You know, so there's, there's a personification. They're talking about the city Bethlehem. It's a well-known city if you've grown up in the church and saying the ruler, the savior of the world, the king of the universe is going to be born in Bethlehem. See, you have to understand, Judah at this time was suffering because they had ineffective leadership. That's true of any organization. Their kings were bad, their judges were bad, they're idolatrous. And because they had ineffective leadership, that's why their king got struck on the cheek. And the hope for the people is to say, don't believe in a human king because they're all broken. Don't believe and trust in human kings because they're ineffective. Don't look to privilege and power. Don't look to wealth and fame. But look to a promise of a true and better king who will be born in this city called Bethlehem. 
So let's talk about Bethlehem because it actually has one of the biggest theological significances in the Bible. Bethlehem. It's small and unknown. You are too little to be even named is what Micah says. Now, have you ever heard of a city called Lawrence? Uh, maybe you have. Lawrence, does that ring a bell? Lawrence, Kansas? Probably not. If you know anybody from Lawrence, Kansas, let me know because that's where I was born. And I've never met anyone from Lawrence, Kansas. I don't know if you even know Lawrence, Kansas. But that's where I was born. I don't know how long I lived there, maybe a year before we moved. But Lawrence was still probably bigger than Bethlehem. Bethlehem was small, which meant that there was no promise, there's no economic power, there's not architectural feats, there's no museums, there's no recognition, there's nothing about it. It was too little to be even named among the clans. In Joshua chapter 15, when Joshua talks about sort of, you know, the city consensus and saying, these are my clans, and he gives you the number of people and the different districts. He doesn't even man mention Bethlehem because it was too small. Now, Bethlehem is a type of city that you would go there and you think, this is a ghost town. You know, Bethlehem, there's no Costco. You know, there's no Whole Foods. There's no Trader Joe's, no movie theater. They probably didn't have a tax code. There's no H-Mart or Zion Market. There's nothing there. Probably didn't even need a traffic light because there's not a lot of people there. And when it says that you weren't big enough to be named among the clans, that's a military term. Clan is basically literally a thousand, and it's the same thing as saying infantry or troop. And it's saying Bethlehem is so small, so insignificant, they can't even raise an army. There's no platoon, no infantry. It was too small to even have protection. The popularity was small. You ever see that movie? this Disney movie where you come up to this old sort of country town, Radiator Springs, what does it say in the movie? Population 20. That's Bethlehem. What's the significance of this? Well, if you didn't realize this, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. That is house, lehem is bread. House of bread. Which is why it's so significant, because in the house of bread is where the bread of life, Jesus Christ, will be baked and cultivated and grow. The most insignificant town had the greatest history. Ruth and Boaz, you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, is basically the great-grandfather or grandfather of King David. Ruth and Boaz, this intimate, loving story, this romance of romances, where does it occur? Bethlehem. That's where their descendant, King David, would be born. The greatest king in Israel, born in Bethlehem in the most insignificant town ever. This old commentator, James Boyce, has said this about Bethlehem. He says, Bethlehem was a small town among the many towns of Judah, but with a great history. And yet, the history of Bethlehem was to become even greater. For it was out of Bethlehem that he who was to be divine and everlasting ruler over Israel would come, Jesus Christ. See, what's the point of this? This tells us, once again, that God uses values and principles that the world doesn't and the contrary to the world in order to accomplish his plan. We got to flesh that out a little bit. He uses values that are a little bit different, methodologies, strategies are a little bit different than the way the world would work. He prizes values in people's lives in a way that the world doesn't necessarily value. You ever apply for a job and you look at the job description, you never see any job description out there in any industry that I've seen. Even jobs for pastors, you never see them say, I want a person who has humility and goodness 
and full of the Spirit and who's gracious and loving and meek, somebody who will live with the marginalized and somebody who will prize not money but distribution of money. You don't really see that necessarily in job descriptions, but that's what God uses in order to further his kingdom. Maybe we could do another Bible story. I, I think last week I did Gideon in the book of Judges 6 through 8. You know, Bethlehem, as I said, Ruth and Boaz, King David. Let's look at 1 Samuel 17. We don't have to read that, but that's the story of David and Goliath to show the significance of Bethlehem and that God uses things in a way that the world doesn't. Do you know the story of David and Goliath? You've grown up in the church, sometimes either at Presbyterian or when people apply to work here as a pastor. In the interview, sometimes I've done this two or three times. I ask them, you know David and Goliath? Where is it in the Bible? 1 Samuel. I was like, can you explain to me how would you teach this to your congregation or your Bible study? How would you teach David and Goliath? And I, I'm kidding you not. They almost always can't give an answer. They don't know. Oh, there's so, there's so much to say in this passage. I don't know. I don't know like what David and Goliath is really trying to say. But let me try to give you a hint of what David and Goliath is trying to bring out for us in the city of Bethlehem where David was born. You remember Israel was always at war. There are the Philistines represented by Goliath. He was the strongest and the tallest man that you could ever see, that you could ever even imagine. And they go up to the city or the nation of Israel, and they're saying, let's have a battle. It's sort of like Brad Pitt in the movie Troy. Bring your best warrior, bring your best warrior, and let's have a battle against one another. And they're going over to Jesse, who was David's dad, and says to Jesse, who do you have in your family that could fight Goliath, who's basically 20 feet tall and the greatest warrior ever? So he brings up his seven greatest, most best-looking sons who look strong. And they deny all of these sons, and they go, who's that out there who's shepherding with the rocks? And that's David. Small, kind of scrawny, unimpressive, young, so he's probably foolish and not very wise. I want him to face Goliath. And sometimes this is where the story gets goes awry. So if you ever hear somebody give David and Goliath in this way, no, you know something's a little bit off because I've heard some people tell David and Goliath and say, well, David's small, but he conquered Goliath because he had stones and he just threw them with a the slingshot and they overcame Goliath. And so the worst one I've ever heard was like, you know how David did this? He took the stone of truth and then he tossed it over to Goliath. And then he took the stone of faith and then he tossed it and flung it into his face. And then took the stone of power and the stone of hope. That is the worst interpretation of the Bible. That is called moralism. The second way that's also wrong is people would apply it this way. If you have the same faith as David, you can defeat the Goliaths of your life as too. You just need bigger faith. That's a little bit better, but it's still couched in moralism. That's not the point of David and Goliath. You can't have greater faith and think you can overcome cancer or overcome financial distress. Have greater faith as if you put the resources on yourself to overcome the difficulties of your life. That's man-centered, and that's just a Christian version of moralistic living that is absent grace and gospel and power. Do you know what David and Goliath is trying to tell you? He's saying there's a cosmic battle. David represents the people of God. Goliath represents the enemies of God. It is not to say believe just like David did so that you can overcome the Goliaths of your lives. It's to say that God uses the meek and the humble and the unexpected ways and that it wasn't actually David's faith that he defeated Goliath. It was actually the object of David's faith who defeated Goliath. 
God himself. And it points to the fact that David foreshadowed and pointed to a true and better David, a greater David, a true and better king in Jesus Christ who's perfect. And the point for our application is not just to say, believe bigger and you'll overcome the difficulties in your life. It's to say that when you look at David, it pushes you to see the true and better David who on the cross and in his resurrection has already overcome and defeated the Goliaths of your lives, namely your sin and evil in this world. You're standing here on the completed work of the greater David so that you can stand in victory and hope and power. The end of the war is done. The end of the game, we know who the winner is. You stand on that truth, and that's what the point of David and Goliath is, is to push you to see the kingdom and the hope that you have in the completed work of the true and better David, Jesus Christ. And how did David, or how did God do this? By using a meek, humble, scrawny boy that the world would never have imagined. That's how David works. That's how God worked through David. That's the point of here. And Micah is saying that don't believe in power and prominence. Believe in the promise of a greater savior, the birth of a better ruler. Bruce Walkie says it this way. The focal point of redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem, showing that Israel's future Greatness does not depend on a great human king, but on a divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing in Jesus Christ. See, like today, God won't always use the flashy charisma of the rich and famous, but he uses the hands and feet of humble, godly followers. Jesus was born not into prominence, but into poverty. Jesus was born not into power, but in humility. Jesus was born not into a palace, but into a manger. And that's something that we have to kind of wrestle with ourselves. When you think about everything about our lives, our significance, our value, our parenting, it doesn't mean that you can't have great gifts. You can have phenomenal gifts and intelligence. It's not saying that. It's saying you can have great gifts. But the way you work differently is that your character would view your gifts in a different way. You don't find your identity in your gifts. You don't judge other people who are not as gifted as you. You use it with a different purpose and goal, not to accumulate reputation and resources, but to use your gifts and all that you've been given in your privilege for other people, out of mercy, love, justice. And you realize in humility that God has given you everything that you have because he'll use the insignificance of Bethlehem to further his kingdom. And if you realize that the principle of humility and other-centeredness, and to realize that in your accomplishments and in your values and education, in your gifts, which are really good, but it has to be used with a character that is represented in the city of Bethlehem, a character that is about emptying yourself for the sake of the kingdom and others. And this leads us to our second point. That's his birthplace. What type of king was he? Well, read verse 2 again. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler, there's your king, ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Old and ancient days probably means his lineage to King David. He's going to be a ruler. Now, the first thing I want you to know in terms of this type of king is this. This king Jesus lived for God. Jesus came into this world, he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead. Do you know why he did this? Ultimately, for God the Father. 
Now you're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought, you know, we evangelize and Jesus, he dies for your sins and he sanctifies you and forgives you. Yeah, he certainly did that. He, he came into this world because he loved you and me to save us, to save a people for himself. And that's certainly true, but ultimately he did this to bring God the Father glory. Now just think about that for a second. If Jesus in all his work was to save you, but ultimately he did it for glory, because in verse 2 it says this, for you shall come forth for me. God is talking, you shall come forth, Jesus, you'll be born from Bethlehem for me. That's what God said, to glorify me, to show my justice in the character of who I am. This is a subtle encouragement to say this type of king glorifies God, and the application for you and me means there may be some necessary adjustments that you have to make in your heart. Because even though the great burden of Jesus to save you and me, his objective in Jesus Christ and all the earth from death to life to resurrection was to bring glory to God the Father. And one of the ways that you can tell that someone is a mature believer is to know that they emulate this heart in Jesus to glorify God in all that they do. It's the same objective that you have that Jesus has. That's how you're going to know that you become a mature believer. Let me try to flesh this out a little bit. You do everything for God. Well, in my household, there's always a battle for the iPad with my kids. And, you know, we have a time limit. I imagine a lot of parents probably have time limits. I don't know, maybe it was just us. You could control it from your phone. Okay, 30 minutes today, 30 minutes tomorrow. There's always a constant negotiation. You get more time, get more minutes. Now I can start getting angry, start getting frustrated. No, you can't have more time. Read the Bible, pray, do something else, play a video game. I have video games to screen too, so then I, I play with them, but that's a different story. So I, I came up with this other rule, which wasn't really good. I was like, okay, for every minute that you practice piano, you can get an extra minute iPad. By the way, don't judge my parenting. I'm, try, I'm, trying, I'm struggling with this just like you are. I'm figuring it out. And one of my daughters, man, she played, she practiced piano 30 minutes to get 30 minutes on iPad. It's like, this is brilliant. She's really practicing. So I was like thinking, I should make her, for every minute you read the Bible, you get one minute of iPad. <laughs> she can grow in godliness. The problem with that, as I thought about it, is that why is she reading the Bible? It's not to know God and to learn more about him. It's still for herself to get more iPad. It just comes out in pietistic expression. Does that make sense? The goal is not really for God glory or to know him and to learn and grow in him. It's to get more iPad. And you're thinking, wow, that's, that's interesting, but that's what you and I do. You have to really be, no, maybe we could be a little bit humble and just kind of dialogue here a little bit to kind of be open and teachable to think about this. Because you could have a lot of end goals for what you do at church. You can have a lot of end goals. For example, I'm going to go to church because I'm going to set example for my kid. I'm going to go to church because my conscience wants to be clean. I'm going to go to church because I promised my parents I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve because I want prominence and recognition in church. I want people to approve of me. You know, all of those things are not bad in themselves, but you realize that they're all for you and not God. 
even if God is third in that list, say, I'm going to go to church first for my kids. I'm going to go to church first because my parents told me. I'm going to go to church because I just want my conscience to be clean, and that's just what I'm supposed to do. And maybe third or fourth, I'm going to go to church to learn about God. If God is second, third in that list, and he's not first and foremost everything, you're still doing it for yourself. That's why if you get verse 2, this type of king, the ruler of the universe, comes and dies for you. What did he do? God says, I'm going to bring you forth for me, for my glory, for my honor, for my reputation. And that's a subtle adjustment in your heart to reflect upon that. That's the type of king he is. Well, let's look again in verse 4. Let's learn more about this king. It says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Well, this king here, which is interesting, is also a shepherd. Now, you ever met a king who's a shepherd? The king is, uh, back in the days in the New Testament, a king in every age is going to be the pinnacle, the height of power and prestige and glory. The shepherd, at least in the days of Jesus, maybe back then too, was on the lowest of the low. They're considered uneducated, low on the social totem pole. They were viewed as corrupt and criminals. They were not respected. You merge these two, both in prestige but also function, because a king rules and administrates, has power. A shepherd is with the dirty sheep, getting his hands and feet dirty along with the sheep, and he merges this together in Jesus. That's the type of king he is. He's a shepherd king and a king who shepherds. You know what that means if he's a shepherd? That means he walks alongside of you, a king that comes down from his throne and knows your deep, dark, dirty secrets, and he still loves you. He's shepherding you. He's nurturing you along. He's giving what you need a king who shepherds. He's very different from every other king. Do you know how other kingdoms and kings work? Well, some kingdoms you're just born into by privilege. You're born into the lineage, you're born into the kingdom. And sometimes when you're born into something, that could breed entitlement, that could bring pride, breed pride, that, that breeds a level of you know, a mentality that I'm better than somebody else. So if you're born into the kingdom, then there's a chance that you're just going to be entitled and judgmental. If you're sort of forced into the kingdom, then you're going to be oppressed, and there'll be a lot of fear and anxiety. You know, if you're conquered by another kingdom and forced to join another kingdom, then you're going to feel fear, anxiety, injustice, depressed, anxiety, and fear. That's what happens. If you're born into the kingdom, you're entitled. If you're forced into the kingdom, you'll have fear and anxiety. But this King Jesus, who's a shepherd, he doesn't force you into his kingdom. You can't be born into his kingdom. He loves you into the kingdom. He graces you into his kingdom. He ushers you into his kingdom by dying for you and loving you and bringing you into his presence. So you know what the difference is? If you're born into the kingdom, you're entitled and prideful. If you're forced into the kingdom, you could be fearful and anxiety. If you're actually loved into the kingdom by Jesus, you'll have freedom and empowerment and security and hope. It'll set your life on a different trajectory because you know the only reason that you're partaking in this wonderful kingdom is utterly by grace, truth, and love by Jesus Christ. He loves you through and through. And he gives you everything that he has 
so that he could love you into his kingdom, and now you're a citizen of the very kingdom of God. Do you know what that means for you? This king, who's also a shepherd, rules over everything in your life. You have nothing to worry about, no fear and anxiety, because he's in control. Now, it doesn't discount that you feel things, but he's in control. He gets it. He understands what you're struggling with. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he had this sort of church history lesson. He had a good friend, Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon, if you read about him, was always worried, very anxious. He was a worrier. He was anxiety-driven. By the way, worriers, they're mentally people of the future because worriers are predicting the future and predicting the future to always be bad. That's why they're stressed in the presence. Worriers are mentally living in the future because that's all they're thinking about, all the negative things that could happen in the future. That's why you look anxious, anxious today. You're frenetic. There's a sense in which you don't feel settled. And we get, you can always sense that with people. You know, it's very difficult. So Philip Melanchthon was like that as well. Martin Luther, one day, as the story goes, goes up to Philip Melanchthon. He's worried and stressed out. He goes over to Melanchthon, puts his hand on his shoulder, and simply says, Philip, let Philip cease to rule the world because God is king of your life. Now, I don't know if that's the best like, counseling community way to counsel people in their anxiety, but the truth is the same. You give yourself too much credit to say that you're in control of your life, that you can manage things and to manufacture an outcome. Some of you are very gifted. You're type A, control every detail. That's probably why you're so stressed and anxious. And maybe Jesus is saying, I'm a king that came for God, and I'm a king who's a shepherd to love you into my kingdom. Now I rule everything about you. Let your heart cease to rule the world and submit to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our last point. What is the extent of that kingdom? How far does it go? Well, let's read the last part of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, and this is what it says about the extent of his kingdom. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The ends of the earth is the extent of his kingdom. Let's talk about that for a little bit. But there's something beautiful in this passage. It says that we'll be secure because let Philip cease to rule the world because his kingdom extends to the end of the earth, which is a great commission. But verse 5 is interesting, and he shall be their peace. Now let's talk about how wide and big is his kingdom. Well, geographically, it's to the ends of the earth. But I think implicitly in verse 5, let him be your peace, I think God's kingdom expands to the width of the universe, but it's supposed to extend to the depths of your heart and your soul. And sometimes I think the greater distance in which the kingdom has to go is into the depths of your heart to really trigger something. You see, friends, you look around during these times and people have all kinds of brokenness in their lives. You see that very easily some of you, and it's not just you, I can relate and understand that as well, there's a lot of chaos in your life. You live in chaos. Relational chaos, organizational chaos, financial chaos, all this brokenness. And this is the thing you have to understand. When it says that Jesus will be your peace, yeah, he could bring peace 
into the chaos of your life, but the deeper reality is that Jesus could be your peace into the chaos of your heart. Because the chaos of your life oftentimes is a result of the chaos of your heart. The reason there's such busyness in your life is because there's a busyness of your heart. The reason that there's so much relational fractions in your life is because your heart is fractioned in your sin between you and God. And so the extent of his kingdom, sure, it has to go to the ends of the earth to speak into this world and culture, to bring an agent of peace. You know, Micah talks about this, let justice roll. Yeah, we got to be agents of this, absolutely. But the beginning place to say before you're an agent of justice out there into the world is Jesus, an agent of justice, bringing peace to your heart. What is peace? Well, that word there is shalom. Even if you're not Jewish, you've heard that shalom is peace. But you realize shalom is a much deeper reality. It's about completeness and wholeness. Now, Tim Keller explains it this way in Generous Justice. This is, this is shalom. He says, God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another. Just as rightly, related physical elements form a cosmos or a tapestry. So rightly related, human beings form a community. And the interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension of your life, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all the relationships are right, perfect, filled with joy. Your work is good. Your money is good. Your family is good. Your friendship is good. The world is good. It's a comprehensive 180, 360-degree view of perfection, completeness, and wholeness and flourishing in life. That's God's vision for your life. And so if you have chaos, the extent of his kingdom is not just to share this message to the ends of the earth, but to preach this message to the depths of your heart. Because you have wholeness. Don't you want this? A peacefulness, an existential groundedness for happiness and wholeness and completeness. I spent 30 minutes earlier this week Looking at this one guy's IG account has all these stories. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I don't know. I don't like people looking at what I'm looking at or knowing what I'm looking at. This guy just comes. He seems like a young guy, 20. He just goes around to strangers in the cities of Manhattan, in the city of Manhattan, New York. Same question to every person. Fascinating. I don't know. I've just drawn into it. About 30 minutes, I'm watching this. Same question. Are you happy? person said, I'm happy. How happy are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you? Now, it's interesting. This is what I've noticed. Maybe, obviously, he curates his IG, but almost everyone on there said, I'm happy. How happy are you? Eight. That was probably the average. I was like, wow, this is a pretty happy, happy city in New York. I don't remember being like that when I lived there. I was like, eight. And then he always asked, well, what, is, what, what could bring it to a 10? It was the same answers. You know, counterfeit gods is true. Humanity is the same. Some say, if I can make more money. Others, if I could find love. One lady said, I really want kids. If I could have better friendships. It was always literally the same four choices. More money, more love, family. Understandably so. But they're still happy at eight. This is a thing that was also interesting. He ended with a philosophical question unintentionally. Do you think happiness is a choice? A hundred percent. Actually, one person said no, but a hundred percent. Everyone said, yeah, happiness is a choice. Do you believe happiness is a choice? Do you believe shalom is a choice? 
If you do, you give yourself way too much credit. Because if happiness and shalom was a choice, it'd make my job a lot easier. But somebody who's suffering cancer, choose happiness and you'll be okay. Somebody who's on the brink of a divorce and marriage, choose, ha choose happiness and you'll be okay. Someone who's struggling in parenting because their kids have mental health. Children, kids, students, you're struggling in school from peer pressure and social media and the pressure of your parents. And you're anxious and you don't realize why you feel this way and you feel angry and all messed up inside. It's easier if I could just say, just choose happiness. But you can't control emotions. I can't choose to be happy necessarily. I can't choose to be depressed. I can't choose to feel relieved. I can't just choose to no longer feel anxious. Do you know why? Happiness and peace cannot be chosen. It has to be given. Do you notice in this verse in verse 5, it says, He shall be their happiness. It doesn't say that he'll show you happiness or that he'll give you happiness. He says he'll be your happiness because peace, shalom, completeness, is a person and is given to you in a relationship. So sure, you can make decisions that bring wisdom and you could choose to believe in God and read your Bible and that cultivates all that, but really peace and shalom, happiness is given to you in a person. Jesus Christ was born in the manger. What's the extent of his kingdom? Oh, you got to bring this message to the ends of the earth. I wish I could talk to the guy on Instagram and say, hey, you know what? You can't choose happiness. It's not that simple because he shall be their peace. He shall be their happiness. He'll give it to them by grace and by love to know this person named Jesus who was born into a manger who centuries later in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 fulfills the prophecy of Micah and Isaiah. And you finally see this sovereign shepherd king born as a helpless human baby. And the angels declare peace on earth. He shall be their peace. He embodies it. He'll give it. It's in a relationship. It's not manufactured, it's not through resources, it's through a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's, in essence, the message of Christianity. A peace and shalom, a wholeness and a beautiful, harmonious tapestry of community and people and objectivity that wraps itself together with a painting of God's grace for you. And when you embrace him and receive him, then and only then, you can answer that guy in IG, I'm happy. I'm a 10. Can you choose happiness? No. But maybe yes, because God chose me to give himself in his son. That's the message of Christianity. That's what Christianity has to offer. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your son. Thank you that Jesus is our peace. He lives it, he models it, he gives it, he distributes it, and he himself is peace. He will be that for us in our relationships, but also in our hearts. We thank you so much, Lord, and we pray that we could respond in song and joy with our tithes and offerings in our voices and our bodies, that we could respond to your grace with the totality of who we are in worship. And we thank you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.